Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics podcast in The Times. I'm Matt Jolly. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, ACAST, Spotify or wherever you listen and get my daily Red Box morning email. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Red Box. Right, down to business. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Frances Gibb, making her first appearance on the Red Box podcast, and sadly her last. It's the last week of the Times having covered the law for the paper since 1982. We'll discuss what's changed and what hasn't since then. Times columnist Daniel Finkelstein explains why he thinks a general election would be mad. But first, Sam Coates, the Times deputy political editor, on who he thinks is to blame for everything. Say it once. Say it a thousand times, I do wonder whether there is much in modern politics that can't be laid at Theresa May's door. We have a leader who doesn't lead, lowering the bar for everyone else in politics. Are politicians just getting worse, or am I getting older? <laughs> what a nice cheery note to start on, Sam. So, why is everything Theresa May's fault? If you look at the papers this morning and the coverage of the Nissan row. So Nissan have announced that they're not going to make one of the uh, off-roaders in Britain, which they had in 2016 promised to uh, uh, to build here. Essentially, it's a bitter, bitter disagreement between Remainers, who all seem to be blaming Brexit, and Leavers, who seem to be pointing to the decline of diesel and the internal problems of Nissan and sort of anything but Brexit. You've just got this sense of an unbridgeable divide between two camps who don't agree, not just on the arguments, but they don't even agree on a common set of facts. And here we are, two and a half years after the referendum and uh, less than 60 days to go until uh, until we theoretically leave the European Union. And uh, none of the divisions have healed. In fact, it, my sense very, very strongly is that the divisions in the country uh, are worse than they were two and a half years ago and this argument that's going on in politics this week between the kind of the Malthouse compromise and the Brady plan and this plan and that plan essentially different groups of people arguing over what the vision for Britain should be should it be a bit more of a low tax low regulation sort of Singapore type country or should it be quite similar to what it is at the moment and that isn't settled and that big picture debate and the failure to bring the nation together after the 2016 referendum, I am today laying at the feet of the Right Honourable Theresa May. Because if there had been a Prime Minister... Just to be clear, um, Danny's got his head in his hands, but anyway, you carry on. Don't worry. <laughs> but could could anybody else have done better? On. I would just like to ask, 
could anybody else have done better? We were always going to get a bloody nose from the EU. It is a classic example of something called the fundamental attribution error, which is to attribute to the characteristics of a person what are, in fact, the characteristics of a situation. Uh, so, um, I mean, I haven't to, even finished. Already we're <laughs> into the bottle. There was hope for I mean, there was a lot of... I mean, I was hoping the, the tide hasn't broken of okay. my argument. Go, go there ahead, is sorry. no hope, Danny. Just get that in your head. <laughs> no, come there on, let, no let, Danny, so let Danny make the counter case. Why is, why is everything not to easy? Well, I... I I'm completely open to criticism of it. I, I, for example, think that for the Conservative Party to, to have done what it did, which is to pursue entirely the Leave vote, it is partly responsible for that, for the situation, and she certainly played her role in that. So I'm not totally dismissing what you say. Uh, but obviously the split in the nation is not down to her. Now, the, the, the other night, I was, somebody was saying to me, you know, how does David Cameron sleep at night so people blame him, right? Uh, and what the, the only people no one ever blames are themselves, you know, which is we don't ever blame <laughs> ourselves for a big political round, which we find it difficult ourselves to uh, make uh, common cause or even understand the other uh, people's point of view, to the point where David Cameron is blamed because he made the mistake of asking people what they thought, and everyone blamed him for the fact that the country then expressed what it thought and half the country doesn't like that. But um, we're she, agreeing she, not to blame David Cameron because we're today blaming Theresa May. Well, she right. did, She did, of course, call the election and thereby lose her majority and thereby get herself on this petard that she's now on with the DUP. You have somebody in number 10 who is incapable, and feel free to disagree with me on this specific point, Danny, who is incapable of taking the nation with her. She is incapable of painting a vision of a better tomorrow that sounds like something that Leavers and Remainers can jointly sign up to as a common destination. Well, what is that? I don't don't know what it is, but the the job of good politicians... So let's let's narrow in on one specific that you said. Yes, she pursued the Leave vote, uh, Leave voters as a path to electoral triumph in the 2017 general election with Bodicea, Mark 17 and all of that standing out nonsense standing outside number 10. But 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 who are the people who are most angry? Who are the people who are most divided? Who are the people who are most dissatisfied with the plan that Theresa May has come up with? Despite all of her botched attempts to bring them with her, she hasn't even brought the levers with her. But it's not her fault, that's their fault. right? So the the reason why I object to it is because it shifts responsibility from people to, to some mythical power that Theresa I admit does not possess to persuade people out of their delusions, right? But the the uh, for example, uh, she's not responsible for the delusionary view that uh, the European Union is going to remove altogether the backstop uh, when it isn't going to. Uh, she she has attempted to explain to the House of Commons precisely that it was not the case that that would happen, but has been forced through the weakness of her political position into having to make some effort to do that. But and Danny, that's not that her. A, that, that's to, to, Danny, to, to, that is an to, to absolute. That is an absolute counsel of despair, yes. suggesting that the person in number 10 can't shape and improve and in some way begin to heal the scars well, of the nation. If you, because that is no, uniquely, clearly, you, obviously if to you, everybody, not her talent. If your analysis if your analysis was limited to that point, then I wouldn't have had so much objection to it. But you went further <laughs> than that and said that there wasn't a problem in British politics that couldn't be laid at her door, which went from making a tenable proposition to making well, a preposterous well, <laughs> well, 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 clearly we can argue that Jeremy Corbyn's lack of tie and Vince Cable's lack of political success can't entirely be put down to Theresa May. Well, and sometimes you instance, make a point 
point for the sake of rhetoric rather than... For instance, OK, yes. For instance, let's say that Jeremy Corbyn, for example, was an enthusiastic Remainer and decided on a second referendum. The situation in the country would be very different. Uh, so he has also made some choices. We've all... And let's, let's assume Jacob Rees-Mogg didn't take the position that he took. And had, 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 there are lots of people who've taken positions for which they must take responsibility. And, I, you know, I, I'm no different from anyone else from that, right? Because, for instance, I supported having a referendum. Uh, lots of people think that's to blame for the situation. To, to try to take all of that and blame it on Theresa May, well, it certainly puts his finger on a weakness, right, which she does have, um, uh, but also a strength. One of her strengths is she's, she's trying to plough through the middle, uh, almost impervious to humiliation, uh, to get a solution at the end of the day without necessarily saying where she wants to go. To, uh, but that's also a weakness. Um, but your assumption, which is that were she to have... Uh, said more clearly where she wanted to go would have made a huge amount of difference. I think that's over-optimistic. She spent a long time not... Because she was not saying where she wanted to go, she created the space for everyone to take fanciful positions, as you were talking about. To actually... I mean, a prime example being, about this time last year, there was an argument between Max Fack and whatever... I don't remember what the other one was. Regulatory something or others. And instead of taking a position, she, let, she set up two cabinet working groups... And so, yes. publicly, members of the, her cabinet because wedded the themselves was to one of them. Split on that. But, so, but instead so, of her taking a position saying, this is what we're doing, yes, but she, she ended up eventually taking a position with half the cabinet on the record well, disagreeing with her. I and that's why they then resigned. I, I was critical of the decision to, to throw all behind the leave, uh, you know, mm. and the red lines. And I haven't agreed with her position on the customs union. And I think occasionally I've been critical that what is going to become obvious, she hasn't decided earlier when it's kind of coming down the road. Yeah. But the idea, for example, that before she became Prime Minister, we were fundamentally united and that she's <laughs> sort of riven the nation apart kind of misses out the fact she wasn't Prime Minister during the referendum, for example. But, uh, but I think so in the end to blame we're all on her is ridiculous. But in, an, in, a, in the end, we're defending, you're defending the absence of something. The absence of a big political figure who is who is taking us further, but but here's one no, other part. I think that I think that people would recognise that she um, does provide does have a quality that is very useful, right? Which is a which she's she's persistently attempting to unify Parliament behind a deal, right? And she got the deal without out of the European it Union without bringing people. Well, well, I would like to ask one very basic layman's question: Who could have done a better job? And when we don't have her, who is the next person going to be? Great question. Well, who is it? I don't know. Let's well, ask well, Danny. <laughs> no, it's not a question. That's not a question. That's not a question for me. It's a question your analysis poses, right? Because you're. I mean, I think France put a foot through your analysis, really. Which is, if, if it's all no, if it's all her, if it's all her fault, there must have been another person. Or well, I'll tell you what, I, I've and I, we've talked about this on the podcast before that I have changed my mind. I thought actually having a Remainer as Prime Minister back in June, July, 2016 was probably the right thing to do to help bring the country together. Actually, I do now wonder: had it been a Lever, had it been Michael Gove, who got up every morning thinking Brexit was a good idea, which Theresa May clearly doesn't, and actually went around telling everyone it was a good idea, and if we all got together, yeah. it might be better. And a Lever reaching out to Remainers would have yeah. been less divisive. I'll tell you what, the hole in that is: it would still have been a rubbish idea, right? Um, <laughs> and um, you know, lots of the discussion about the negotiation always takes place as if there wasn't another party to it, but there is. The European but Union you, was involved in it. You, so, you think that Theresa May is literally the best person that we could have had. Uh, yes, actually. And still. I do, I do take that view. When I mean, Matthew Paris, after the general election, argued that Theresa May should resign, and I thought that it was quite a compelling point, until I began to think of how you would move 
from that situation. So the situation was very poor. And in those circumstances, there wasn't any other candidate who could terribly win who was anywhere near as good as her. And I've never felt since then that it was a good idea to replace her. So that's why my answer to that question is yes. Is she the paragon of all virtues? No, clearly Sam has put his finger on some critical points about her, which are serious problems. Her withholding nature certainly is a serious problem. The the inability to communicate with colleagues is certainly a serious problem. I'm not uncritical or, or incapable of seeing what's before my eyes, but the idea that the split in the country which is about very fundamental long-term trends and which divides people on social class lines is the only thing I just think is rubbish. Okay well let's move on but I'm sort of slightly staying on uh, Theresa May's uh, merits as Prime Minister. Should we have another general election? This is Daniel Finkelstein. Well for the Tories to contemplate a deliberate election it would whatever the polls might say be absolutely insane and I can only imagine that all this election talk is basically about preparing for an accidental election. So, Danny, over the weekend, there were stories in um, the Sunday papers, excitable stories in the Sunday papers. Um, v, uh, D-Day being lined up. A D-Day election in June, apparently, was one option. About before the election that she held last time, when it was announced that the podium was being placed in uh, in Downing Street, I incautiously said it won't be an election. This is because I had excellent sources who told me that it wasn't going to core election right uh, and I the lesson I learned from that was trust your political analysis right and the political analysis was this is quite a good time to call an election actually before I rethought that and, and realized that was probably an incomplete analysis but anyway at the time <laughs> at the time at the time, I th- did, at the time all of my bells were saying call an election call an election and then I thought she's she isn't going to call an election because someone told me she wouldn't well so now I'm determined to rely more on my uh political instincts and analysis and I don't think it's a good time to call an election let's put there is one reason for calling an election now uh, which is nothing to do with Brexit and that is to do with the fact that real incomes are rising and it's better to call an election when real incomes are rising Uh, and that probably in a state we don't discuss it much is probably buoying the Tory uh, percentage in the polls more than we think however when you take into account everything else the fact that it's attempt to win a fourth election in a row the fact that the conservative party has got a leader who um who has said that she wants to stand down who'd then have to fight this election so and the fact that it has no policy on you know the brexit <laughs> the brexit split isn't going to go away uh, just because even if the withdrawal agreement is agreed which was one of the sort of posits behind the behind this, this election i think it would be insane to hold an election so much so that i'm pretty sure that they're not contemplating doing that what i suspect is happening is that the chance of an accidental election which are i think reasonably high they're not they're not overpowering but i think there's a possibility that the brexit negotiations will get nowhere and that the no the no to no dealers will bail out on the government um, so there's sort of Remainer Tories. Just enough would, Remainer Tories. Withdraw support for the government, yes. so it loses a, a confidence vote. Jeremy Corbyn cobbles together, tries to cobble together government, doesn't work over two weeks, and then we just have a general election. Yes. Sam, what do you think? Are we heading for the polls? So uh, at a point at which the, as it were, executive, the government, Downing Street, is fundamentally at odds with the legislature, the Commons, MPs, the only way that our system has to resolve that is to have a general election. Now, we've got lots and lots of kind of problems with that. Fixed-term parliaments act and all the rest of it. People essentially now, like they never have had to in the past, have to make a proactive choice in the, on the governing side to have an, a, a general election. But that, nevertheless, is the situation. And there aren't many options in Theresa May's toolbox for what to do to avoid 
and to advance an argument that, that isn't advancing very far, quite fast. And so it does remain a possibility. Is, and, um, you know, Danny's absolutely right. There's maybe in their right minds in the Conservative Party would be planning for an election right now because you saw that spike post-election being called uh, for Labour last time round. And I'm quite sure that in, you know, places like Middleton and Nicky Morgan's seat and all along those kind of Tory seats along the M4 belt, they live in fear of that happening again. And, 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 and to be honest, as austerity continues to be in place, which it is still at the moment, we've got, you know, spending review soon, which might change that. But at the moment, um, budgets are still going down. People are hurting, and they will. They could potentially react accordingly, like they did in 2017. So it's an it's an it's an enormous risk. We're going down in 2017, so that is that is, that is a slight difference. But I think the the biggest problem the Conservative Party would have with putting together a program and also coming behind the, the leader. To my mind, there's such a sort of unity of view among Conservatives that I speak to that this wouldn't be a good idea. That you can only see it happening by accident. But it, you know, but, but it could. or not, but it could. Yeah. That absolutely could. And there, and so therefore. The party chairman is right to prepare the party for that possibility because it's a real possibility. So, Francis, does the idea of a general election fill you with joy? Another one, as, Another Brenda, one. as, as Brenda would say <laughs> in Bristol. <laughs> well, I mean, it neither fills me with joy or horror. I mean, I can't see the point of it, frankly, at this stage of the game. I mean, we're, we're you know, we're at such a critical stage. Well, that would just hold everything up, put, put a delay into the proceedings. What would be the point of it? Um, you know, OK, we get we might get a different government, I suppose, and then they'll have to start all over again. And that's part of the problem, isn't it, Sam? The, the public, already sick... We were talking on the podcast last week about all the polling and focus groups. The public are sick of talking about Brexit and why can't they just sort it all that? The sort of public reaction to a... What would, to them, seem like another unnecessary intrusion on their daily lives and um, having to go out and vote again, th- th- there's no way of knowing how that would play out either. No. I do think post-Brexit structurally the British public are going to have to get used to something new which is the evolution of what for want of a better term I would call cliff edge politics we've got a cliff edge at the moment it's March 29th day we leave the European Union if we don't get a deal and bad things will allegedly happen and you know it's a it's an important moment we've got to get through but then we've got to negotiate a full deal and then at the end of that negotiating period if we haven't done that there'll be another cliff edge I think cliff edge politics will be with us for the rest of our political reporting lies as far as I can see, because there's always going to be deals to be tweaked with the European Union, reviews going on, threats from the EU to pull where we are, general elections that change things, leadership contests that chain, that are won on the basis of changing the terms of our relationship with the EU as a third country. And I think that cliff-edge politics is a thing. So, so I think Brenda's just got to get a grip and get used to it because those cliff edges are going to trigger uh like dominoes more electoral events and i think the cycle of british politics being less secure i mean political journalists probably benefit but i'm not sure who else does is just now going to become a structural feature of where we are what what do you think about well, that danny I, I- I think what you may be pointing to is that the political party system will be in flux. Mm. That, that clearly, uh, you know, because one of the reasons for waiting for a general election if you're a Conservative is that one of the ways the Conservative body could win the election is if the Labour body splits. Uh, it won't, it appears, do so until after the Brexit situation is sorted. It may not do so in a very big way. I've never particularly 
thought that it that that a new party would be successful, but that doesn't mean it won't happen, and that it wouldn't be damaging mm. to Labour, which is a different thing. Um, and so uh, the Conservatives want to wait for that. I, I, I agree with Sam that we may have a more unstable politics, but I think one of the reasons for that is that the party system, that the, the split between the Conservative Party and the Labour Party is probably not in the right place. Uh, that that Tony Blair, you know, who's very perceptive uh, student of politics, when he said. In the in, before he retired, resigned as prime minister, that we were going to move to an open versus closed debate. I think that is the direction in which we're going. But how exactly that manifests itself is not the moment. Because I'm not sure which is the open and which is the closed <laughs> party. Correct. Because at the moment part, we've got both parties have both, got a mixture, uh, yeah, yeah. and both parties are kind of uh, you know. But in particular, I mean, weirdly, the Labour Party is led by a leader who's more inclined to closed. Um, the, uh, then the Conservative Party, though she clearly was tempted with the with the sort of Lancaster, or to House. put it in my words, you know, right. you're in a balloon with Richard Bergen and Daniel Kaczynski. What happens next? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an entirely different question. Um, coming up after the break, we'll be talking to Frances as her almost 40 years of covering uh, the law for the Times comes to an end. The highlights and lowlights, and how much they drank at lunchtime. We'll be back after this short break. 
On top of that, of course, you've got the change that all journalists face with the internet, the arrival of the internet. You know, when I started, it was literally was typewriters, four copies of blacks, as we used to call them. One went off to the printers, one went to the sub-editors or the other way around. And um, phoning in from phone boxes, usually never working, no mobiles. Can you imagine? Uh, <laughs> very, very different time. Francis, what we really want to know is you pitched up in the morning. Now, did you go into the office or did you go into the pub? Where was the business really done? How did it work? Can you sketch out what a 1982 day in the life of the Times looked like? Yes, very, very slow pace compared with now. And the beauty of it, probably one story or two at most. So you might pitch up to the office in the morning, but then there'd always be lunch. Lunch with a contact and people would drink, you know, unlike now. And then you'd come back. How and much? You might, I don't know about everybody else, but I'd probably have half a bottle. And what, then, was the, and what was the most you ever had at lunch? Or your contact ever had it? I think, I think if there was a large quantity, <laughs> I, won't, I won't be remembering it. I think Sam's so, <laughs> mistaken substance. <laughs> yes, I think, I think it's interesting. So you are so concerned about if, the quantity if, if, that we used to drink in those days. Yes, enough anyway, to forget anyway. Enough to forget. But the point is, you come back, you come back well-oiled. And I also had experience of this before the Times for a couple of years on the Telegraph, and it was particularly the case. You'd come back quite reasonably well-oiled, you'd write your one story, and that would pretty well be it. And it was a lovely slow pace. You didn't have de- deadlines as we have now all through the day, you know, online by 11 and midday and all the way the rest of it. And w- was there more news editing? Was there more sense of what they wanted from the paper or was it more up to you than it is today? I mean, how's the relationship between the bosses and the writers changed over that period? I think it was much more left to you. There was news editing, but they would very gently say, perhaps we could have this in the intro. Whereas now, as we all know, to our cost, the news news desk will rewrite. Several people on the news desk might rewrite your intro, might get done several times. Just for the tape, I don't mind that at all. (laughs) (laughs) I'd completely relax with whatever they come out with. The way that operated, and then as I say, getting out of London was another great difference. I mean, now, because of the demands of the internet, and paradoxically, in one way, that's been (coughs) a great freedom creator. You know, you can get information so quickly you don't have to trail over to the library and get out a dusty old file of cuttings to to, to research a story. Now you can get it in five minutes on the internet. You you were a pioneer, uh, Francis, partly because you uh, were not, your background wasn't legal and your brilliant piece, you mentioned how some people responded to to this uh, in the profession. Um, In retrospect, uh, were they wrong? And secondly, how does that make you feel when, for example, during Chris Grayling's tenure, uh, lots of people, lots of lawyers said, you know, the problem is the Lord Chancellor must be a lawyer. Yes. And I was thinking, well, also the Lord Chancellor must be a consumer of law as well. Uh, So um, not just a producer of it. So what did you think of both those things? Well, they're two good points. I mean, I obviously think and hope they were wrong. I mean, obviously, I hope I've proved that. And interestingly, I think that's evident by the fact that now people would not look to a lawyer any more than they look to a doctor to cover health. They wouldn't look to a lawyer to cover law. I hope so, anyway. Um, But (laughs) as to the Chris Grayling point, I I actually agree with you. I don't think the Lord Chancellor needs to be a lawyer, that the legal profession, as we know, have made much of that. But I think it's evidenced by the fact that they absolutely adored Michael Gove, who wasn't a lawyer. So it's more down to the individual and whether they've got the... Requisite so understanding it, of the position of law and, and 
the judiciary in our constitution. So it's not about being a lawyer, it's about being Chris Grayling that's the problem. It's, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Who'd have thought? Uh, yeah. so, so, Francis, we, we live today in the Me Too era where people talk about their experiences, women talk about their experiences in male-dominated uh, in work environments. But in 1982, you were a senior Times journalist in what would have been a completely male-dominated newsroom. What was that like? How did that um, manifest itself? What was the behaviour like? I think I think it was very, very different. I mean, although I did get my three periods of maternity leave, not for the one year, I hasten to say, that you get now, you then shut up about the fact you'd had children. You didn't even mention it. You certainly never raised it as an excuse for leaving or not getting to something. You absolutely pretended it hadn't happened. And there were very few of us. In fact, I can't even remember anybody else who was having children at that stage. And I do remember when I joined the Times, and it was as a general report, in those days and they said oh, go and find yourself a spare desk because they did exist and I went over to one corner of the room and one of the other few female reporters said don't come here don't come here she said your, your mate is a women's area so, so she kind of hate me, <laughs> hasted me off and, and, and were men who worked at the Times in 1982 enlightened? I think journalism has always been more in line. I mean, certainly Charlie Wilson, who um, gave me, get, allowed me to go part-time to do the job. Yes, I mean, he was pretty enlightened. I mean, having said that, he did say, yes, you, you can do the same job. That'd be great. You can do it in half the time, and that will be on half the money, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and what about... Because, I mean, to do one beat at one paper for such a length of time... I mean, I occasionally have, you know, in the depths of Brexit despair, have pangs of, I really, maybe I should go and do arts or something. Just to, whether or not I could carry on doing... Uh, covering politics for another 30 years still be covering Brexit yes exactly was there ever a point where you got bored of it or does it get better and better no I I think I think what I usually say when people ask that is the fact that you know if you have to work for nine different editors every time they come along you imagine you're going to be sacked I mean I never actually (laughs) thought I would still be in the job beyond the age of 50 and I'm much nearer 70 now than 50 but so every time as, as we all know you have to prove yourself again you have to think well they don't know who I am why would they Care. Excluding the current one, because that would be a conflict of interest, which one was the best and which one was the worst? Well, I think um, I think Peter Stoddard was very good, partly because of his longevity. He did a decade. He promoted and created the law section, which at that time is possible because of the burgeoning legal advertising market, which has since fallen away. Um, so he was very good in that respect. Charlie Wilson, I already mentioned, because he allowed me to go part-time and enable me to have my family. And... Um, Worst. I know I'm not going to be. I'm not going to be called on that one. I don't want to be liable. I can <laughs> dump a libel I can, at this stage of the game. You can tell me. I've already, like, I've you can already tell me been taken sued for contempt of court once, and I don't want to. Well, what happened? You can tell. You can tell me when, <laughs> after, when the when the buttons turned off. Yeah. Well, no, no, I was taken to court and uh, cost the Times fifteen thousand pounds. And um, I have to say, in my defence, it all went through our legal department. But nonetheless, you know, contempt of court for speaking to a juror. That was that. In terms of highlights and lowlights, you talked about some of the things. Um, Derry Irving calling you a silly goose for writing, basically writing down something he'd said and putting it in the paper, is that right? He gave me... I had an interview with Derry Irving and he gave me, as part of this, uh, a, a speech he'd given. No-one had picked it up, so it was effectively like an exclusive. And in the middle of this speech, he was drawing parallels between his position and that of Cardinal Wolsey. And at that time, there'd been a lot of stories, you may remember or you may not, yeah. about the cost of lavishly you know, his money he'd spent on his, his apartments... To 
£650,000 worth of very, very expensive wallpaper, Pugin-style wallpaper. And so, of course, the tabloids absolutely love this story, which we put on the front, and it went crazy. And everybody did mock-ups of Irvin as Cardinal Wolsey. And I don't think he ever... People never really forgot it. Uh, funny, I had a very <laughs> funny thing with that, because I was working for William Hague at the time. Oh, yes. uh, and um, <laughs> Gary Irvin was right about the wallpaper. But I also thought that he, he was the most unbelievable thing he obviously thought the more he went on about it eventually all the tabloid newspapers would go oh yes you're right and start <laughs> and I, I was i've never seen anybody who just couldn't accept the realities of politics he kept plunging on with this thing which was a total loser even though he i could see why he was a bit frustrated because it wasn't obviously up to him what wallpaper got put in the in no. the in the palace of westminster and you and he was right you can't but how he thought that if you went to a committee and said, I can't just put it up from B&Q, that would go down no. in the newspapers. No, I mean, he probably was, was right, but I think the trouble with him, the combination, it was the combination of all that, plus his very grandiose and sort of arrogant demeanour, always boasting about how he chaired four cabinet, cabinet subcommittees oh. and all the rest of it, and was responsible for devolution, the Human Rights Act, and it was that, wasn't it? I was, it was, well, I was working at the time with George Osborne, and George was very defensive of his right to put up very expensive wallpaper, and I kept teasing. George is the reason why possibly felt it might the company might be in for some business. <laughs> so Francis, if I if I may, if you if you took a step back and looked at the way the legal profession is covered across the last thirty years, what's done well and what's done less well? I mean, take the way that legal aid is covered, often a tabloid whipping horse, or the way that judges are talked about. Is that still a bit too deferential? Is it, if you if you look across the piece at the way the legal profession is is written about in newspapers and now in blogs and on Twitter. What's done right and what's done wrong? I think there's a big difference between, the, I would say this, but tabloids and uh, what were broadsheets. I mean, I think, as you say, legal aid is always going to be a whipping boy. And I think, you know, the, the, the secret barrister, the book anonymously by written about the failings of the justice system at the minute under its sort of cash-starved situation, that has had immense success, but would never have made waves in the mail, I don't think. Because, you know, we, we like to... I think we write sympathetic piece, pieces about cash-starved barristers, but not many other people get that. And um, <laughs> not when they go out on strike and hold their Gucci handbags outside court. It doesn't go down terribly well. So they still got a job of work to do in promoting themselves properly and if they want to get that message across they haven't done that brilliantly um, judges much the same I mean you know nobody wants stories about judges working in offices with buckets and water they just don't care about that so again I think I think they've got a bit of a job of work to do in PR terms um, it's better than it was to answer your question I think um well, they didn't care. They didn't care about the publicity 30 years ago. They didn't want it. And they Do you didn't think there's been it. any change in attitude to re-offending, for instance? Because there was a period, politically, where you couldn't really make a case for softer sentences and greater rehabilitation of offenders. Do you think that any of that has eased up over time? I think there may be, because of, the, because of the financial constraints of the situation, you know, people like David Gork, currently Justice Secretary, could push a bit more than he was able to for things like restorative justice, for things like getting rid of six-month sentences, all those things which would have been absolutely anathema a few years ago under Michael Howard. So I think, yes, I think judges, if you look at them politically, have been, certainly for the last 10, 15 years, quite a liberal bunch they are our judges are liberal I mean mostly 
and you haven't got the kind of hang and flog and brigade of the early 80s. What do you plan to do when you're freed from later this week when you hang up your typewriter? I haven't got a plan B. <laughs> I don't know. I, don't know. I, I may do the odd piece for the paper. I may do some obituaries and uh, I thought I would just pause for breath and see what happens. Well, we wish you all the very best. Thank, Thank you, you very much. much. Thank you. Yeah. Hopefully you get to ignore uh, Brexit slightly more often than we do. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, ACAS, Spotify, wherever you get them from and sign up to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box. But for now, from Sam Coates, Daniel Finkstein, Francis Gibb and me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. Goodbye. 